that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. What do you think about the proposed $2.8 billion UBC Broadway subway line? Will this come at the expense of other regional rapid transit projects? And how would it shape the city's transit and urban development? What are the lessons to be learned from the Canada Line experience? On the program, I'm talking with Maddie Simiatiki. He is assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Department of Geography and Program and Planning. His research focuses on transportation policy and planning and how large infrastructure projects are financed and delivered. You're tuned in in the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
Vancouver's Fanshawe, the track Off On, Off CITR's Pop Alliance Volume 3 here on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the city, also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca. Thanks so much for being with me. On the program, talking with Assistant Professor Matti Simiotiki. He's interested in transportation policy planning, and his research has looked at uh, infrastructure, finance, and delivery, and um, wider themes uh, within community and regional planning. So he's on the program today. He's author of a number of uh, publications, including uh, Developing Transportation for a Livable City, The Case of Vancouver, Canada, Delivering Transportation Infrastructure Through Public-Private Partnerships, Our Expectations Being Met. As well as, what's the secret? The application of confidentiality in the planning infrastructure using private and public partnerships. So a variety of different uh, issues within transportation planning and policy that we'll be discussing over the next hour. And um, with that, um, we're going to go right into that. And this was a discussion um, from March 14th and uh, had a a great time discussing a number of these issues, and also within the broader um, context of of what does the regional transportation uh, system look like in Metro Vancouver, and how does it connect up with existing infrastructure and uh, transit and uh, bus um, and other uh, rapid transit technologies. So keeping all of this in mind, and Ultimately, how is this shaping the development that we're going to see within the region and what kind of development do we want to see um, based on the transportation planning that we do? Uh, so uh, Professor Simiotiki provided a number of different um, thoughts around this and, and things to think about. Um, a lot of his research has looked at the Canada Line experience and so uh, what, what we should be thinking about when we consider a possible subway down Broadway, if that's the preferred option, um, as uh, City Council has recently um, Vision Vancouver has been very much in support of, um, and they've made uh, that case quite strongly recently. So with that in mind, uh, this is again Assistant Professor Matti uh, Simiotiki. He's uh, in the Department of Geography and Program and Planning at the University of Toronto. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CJSF 90.1 FM, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Can you give me a sense of your research focus and, and what you've been uh, looking at over the past number of years? Sure. So I started out um, with a real interest in, in transit and public transit and, and cycling and active transportation uh, and trying to understand how cities um, move towards more um, uh, in, uh, active uh, types of transportation and how we uh, provide alternatives to the automobile. Uh, recognizing that cars are are a part of cities and an important part of how people move around, um, but they don't necessarily have to be for every trip, and how we build cities um, to to make other modes uh, viable. Um, In carrying out this research, and I really started doing this work when I came out to UBC um, in uh, the early 2000s to do my PhD, uh, it became increasingly clear that in order to understand how transit projects uh, where they were going to be built and what technologies were going to be used and what the community benefits and costs were going to be, you really also had to understand the mechanisms that, that were uh, being used to finance them and to pay for the development of these projects and to plan uh, and the planning processes that were used to decide what projects were actually going to be built. And so um, I moved out there um, just as the conversations about the Canada Line were heating up um, and the debates were going on about whether it should be built at all 
where it should be built and what whether it should be underground or and on uh, uh, on on surface or even above ground uh, technology should be used all the way along the line so um, through that I got a first hand view of um, of both the politics and how contentious uh, transit decisions can be but also um, a first hand look into um, one of the early um, uh, public-private partnerships. The Canada Line, um, in addition to being controversial for the routing and, and all the other uh, aspects, was also controversial because it was going to be one of the first lines in Canada, uh, major public transit, uh, rail transit lines, uh, paid for uh, and, and, and delivered through this uh, uh, public-private partnership model. So it's, it, it's from there, that's how I've got, become interested in it. And increasingly, my work now looks at, um, looks specifically at the public-private partnership, or P3 model, um, to try to understand what the broad implications are uh, when you make decisions uh, and when you plan projects through this, um, through this somewhat different way of delivering infrastructure. Can you provide listeners with a sense of what, what a P3 entails. I know we often hear that language, but um, obviously I'm, I'm sure there's some specificities as to the specific project we're talking about, but generally, um, what does it entail? Okay, so in order to understand what a P3 is, it's useful to um, think about what the traditional model is. Now, the, the public and private sector have always um, collaborated in the delivery of infrastructure projects, uh, here in Canada. Uh, so the government, in the traditional model, the government plays um, the, the major role uh, in, in a large part of delivering the infrastructure. And so it's, it's considered to be a, a largely unbundled approach to delivering infrastructure. So what we see is um, the government, working often with a set of private consultants, will, um, will develop a design for a type of facility they want. Then they'll put that design out to tender, uh, and the private sector uh, contractors will uh, put forward their bids to build the project. The government will raise the money themselves to build it, so they don't normally have the money in the bank. Instead, they go to the bond or the or um, or the debt markets and borrow the money uh, to pay for to pay for the project and pay for it through um, their normal borrowing facilities. And then, when the project is done, when the construction when the private uh, contractor is done building it, they turn it over to the um, to the government, and the government can then either operate it themselves, or in some cases, they can contract out that facility operation. So, um, so you see that there's many different parts, and different private sector actors are in, involved in quite an un, what I would call an unbundled type of way. Um, what we saw with the, this type of project delivery model um, were a few um, historic challenges. One was a pattern of major cost overruns uh, and often uh, long delays in the delivery of projects. Um, um, other problems were that in many cases the facility would, would be built and then the ridership would not live up to expectations. Um, in some cases there were, it was highly political in terms of uh, which projects were chosen, um, where they were located, um, or and, and in other cases the project might not have been built all that well, but because the private sector partner wasn't, um, uh, you know, had, had been paid when the construction was done, uh, there was not necessarily an incentive for them to really try to maximize uh, the value, to maximize the design, and, and, and really come up with the most efficient way of delivering the project. Uh, and so there were these things called handover risks as well uh, that were starting to crop up with some of these projects. 
So the public-private partnership model then really tries to address some of those underlying um, challenges. And again, this is just the theory of it. Then and we can talk um, uh, in a little while about whether that theory is actually being realized in practice, and that's been a lot of what my work is on. But the theory then is that if you bundle these contracts into, if you bundle these different tasks, facility design, facility opera, facility um, construction, facility finance, uh, operations and maintenance into the same uh, concession with a single um, a single private sector team. It's usually not a single firm, but a team. Um, by doing that, that bundling, you can then try to incentivize them to uh, build the project on time and on budget because uh, in the way that you pay them uh, for their initial investment, they don't get paid unless the project is built on time. Uh, and if they're involved in the operations and maintenance and they have money at stake uh, and are not being, are being repaid for their initial investment over an extended period of time, like a 35-year period, like in the case of the Canada Line, then they have an incentive to build it properly the first time and maintain it over that period. And if they don't, then, then you have money that you can withhold or charge penalties to them. So you're really trying to, it's the public-private partnership model then in theory is really about trying to balance, um, balance higher um, private borrowing costs. When the private sector borrows money, uh, it, it typically has uh, higher borrowing costs than when the government borrows the money directly. Um, so you're trying to balance out that higher borrowing cost against really what's called risk transfer. So hmm. can you transfer some of the risks of project delivery um, around construction cost overruns, delays, uh, and poor operations from the, the public to the private sector? So that's really an overview of how uh, a public-private partnership works. In practice, and maybe using the Canada Line as an example, you've written uh, quite extensively on it. How does how does the P3 play out, and, and what was... What's your analysis of, of the Canada line? So the P3 process um, had, I guess like everything in life, had its pros and its cons. Um, the, it was early on in the process, it, was, um, it became controversial around whether this was, you know, how we were going to deliver this project and, and, and um, uh, the model of delivering it, and especially the public-private partnership, became as contentious as uh, the project itself. And um, when we reflect back on the experience overall, we can see um, that there are trade-offs and, and, and uh, uh, as I said, pros and cons of, of how it was done. So on the uh, some of the challenges, let's start there, um, the issues around uh, transparency of information and, and uh, the ability for the public to be really meaningfully engaged in these projects, um, there was a high level of confidentiality of certain types of information as the bidding process was taking place. Um, and, and I think you, you could see that in terms of really meaningfully engage, meaningfully engaging people, uh, that became difficult. It's not that the planners of that project didn't hold public consultations. They held many. Um, they held, I think, dozens uh, up and down the line. The issue was that not all of the information was necessary that would be needed to understand uh, the decisions was in the public realm some of it because of uh, the need to keep commercial confidentiality of the firms that were being involved. Um, so that, that's one area uh, where perhaps um, uh, there, was, there was a potential tension. Another area was that the cost of the project did creep up over, uh, over the course of the planning process. So um, from where it started when it was introduced at um, 
uh, at one cost, I think that cost was around 1.35 or even 1.5 billion, uh, to the number that ultimately was approved for delivery, which I think was closer to 2 billion. Um, that was a considerable uh, creep in terms of the cost before the project was approved. But in terms of the pros then of, of the of the P3 model. Um, in this case, a project that was really a large uh, and time-sensitive project with the Olympics coming uh, was built on time uh, and by all accounts on budget. So that um, that is a, a significant um, accomplishment. It was accomplished um, by all accounts with the um, Millennium Line in Vancouver as well. So it doesn't mean that you can't do it with traditional financing and traditional project delivery if it's well-managed. But it is also the case that that project was uh, delivered on time uh, and by all accounts on budget. And the other part I think now is that people are pretty happy with the operations, at least um, the people I've talked to and are pretty happy with um, the way the system is is working. Um, another part of, of the story is that um, you are starting now to see substantial development uh, along the Canby Corridor, which is uh, an important part of delivering transit is, um, is, is the potential um, land use uh, changes that occur along the line as well, and I think we are starting to see that. So, um, from someone um, from someone outside, uh, where in transit debates, there's always concern that you're going to build these systems and you're not going to get the land use uh, change around them. Uh, that's another part of the uh, Canada Line story, uh, and and by all accounts, the planning process of that now has been trying to work to make sure that um, it's not just gross density but rather that it's actually usable density and that it's, it's um, uh, building neighborhoods, not just building a forest of towers. With the Canada Line, one of the major critiques is that there was a reliance on foreign temporary workers. In any of your work, do you see that the P3 model is more likely to rely on, on low-wage migrant labor as opposed to... Um, you know, hiring work workers that are paid at least a minimum wage, or is there any is there any relationship to that program or the reason that the foreign temporary uh, worker program was used in that case? So that's an important question, um, and was certainly one of the contentious areas around uh, the construction of that project. One thing to keep in mind is that the same firms that built the candle line. Uh, through a P3 have also been involved in uh, traditional build projects across the country as well. And so it's it's not entirely clear whether the use of the foreign temporary workers was is a strategy by that firm that they would use on all projects uh, when they um, deliver infrastructure in, in Canada or whether that was a strategy that was um, specifically related to the P3 model. Um, so there's no doubt that that aspect of it was contentious and there was um, different uh, types of um, recourse that were taken to try to uh, remedy that. But um, in terms of whether that was connected to the P3 process, um, that, that at least from the stuff I've read, the material I've read, I'm not entirely um, sure that that connection is there, but it's one that definitely should be explored in greater depth mm -hmm. um, because certainly the project, when we're building infrastructure, part of the, uh, the public benefit is, is also the work uh, force and the potential to create jobs um, and, uh, and, and, and good-paying jobs and secure jobs and jobs that uh, train people in, uh, and, and, and importantly train Canadians who are going to then contribute to, um, contribute to our economy uh, on, on future projects. And so uh, if, if, 
uh, it's, it's important to understand what, what aspects the P3 model really uh, play in that. But at least with the Canada line as a, as a one-off experience of that, uh, without further research, understanding if that's a trend that's happening more on P3 projects than other types of projects, we'd really want to look into that before, hmm. before we draw much more specific conclusions about whether that's a P3 issue or whether that's uh, really an infrastructure issue that has to be addressed more systemically um, in terms of how the foreign, temporary foreign worker program is designed. Right. Would you say that the P3 model is is symbolic or, or representative of a larger, broader trend to move the delivery of, of public um, services or, or public infrastructure to uh, the market? I think it depends on what models are being used, and there's some important distinctions here. So, um, and in some ways, it depends where you're sitting in the country. Um, British Columbia has probably pushed the furthest in terms of uh, in the types of public-private partnership models that they use. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, you can when you bundle uh, projects, uh, when you bundle different functions together, you tend to bundle uh, the one the functions that could be bundled are facility design, uh, construction, financing, operations, and maintenance. And British Columbia, and, and you can bundle some combination of those. Not all projects bundle all of those. Um, British Columbia has probably pushed the furthest uh, in terms of, of including facility operations uh, and maintenance into the public-private partnership deals that they've uh, um, uh, entered into. And so in that sense, there is um, a movement of uh, um, some of the provision of public services to the private sector. Um, by comparison here in Ontario, uh, most of the projects here in Ontario, or a large number of them at least, have been hospital projects. Um, and in that case, many of them are actually, don't, many of those don't actually involve operations and maintenance, um, or certainly not operations, but and, and less, uh, uh, not all of them include maintenance either. So it really is, it depends on uh, the types of models that are being used. That determines really um, how much of this is about uh, market forces. But keep in mind that in the delivery of these projects, even when you have operations and maintenance included in the bundle, um, the provision of that service is still um, controlled through a concession agreement that was developed um, in consultation and partnership with uh, the government uh, partner. And so um, it's not it's not in most cases outright privatization where the private sector can um, develop the service and provide it as they uh, see fit. Uh, there, there is still some aspect of, uh, uh, and a large aspect of, of government in intervention and involvement in designing uh, what type of service should be provided and who benefits from it. Maybe more theoretical, um, but when we think about transit as a public space and as part of the public realm, I, this is a, a small uh, anecdote, but I was surprised coming off one of the platforms or into the stations of uh, one of the Candleline stops, and they had a booth uh, right up, right in front of the escalator, so you couldn't miss it, uh, trying to sell you uh, a credit card um, or get you to sign up for a credit card. And I was struck, and I, I sent an inquiry into, uh, into In Transit BC, which is the, mm -hmm. uh, the private partner, um, which... Um, essentially servicing and is, has this agreement is and something I never received a response but I guess does this maybe make, should this make us think about how we conceive of, of transit as part of the public realm part of public space 
And is it likely in some of these cases to simply become a more commodified space or where you can't escape, you know, passing people trying to sign you up for credit cards when you come off the train? I guess maybe just trying to think about um, these things critically is, uh, is there, do you share, do you share a concern about losing that idea of transit as a pub, part of the public realm, part of the public space? Transit is certainly a key part of the public realm, and it's it's really one of the great equalizers in our cities, and it's so important that it's it's provided um, equally and fairly, um, and that the service extends to all corners of the city. Um, that's one of the big debates that we're having here in Toronto about how we get public transit to all um, all uh, areas of this city, and importantly to to parts of the city that have very um, widely differing uh, income levels to ensure that um, everyone in the city has the same opportunity um, to get to jobs, to get to recreation, to get to health, um, uh, to see family, all of the important things that transit provides. So the discussion about transit as a, as a public good, I think, is critical. And transit as a space, as a free space, uh, and, a, and, a spa- and by that I mean um, a, a space that, everyone, uh, that, that people can't be excluded from is really important. Now, the question about whether they're selling you a credit card uh, on this on the platform um, is really much more of a, is, is to me at more of an operations level. I mean, here in Toronto, we've had um, uh, we've had um, um, shops, small shops, in the transit system for decades. Um, so you could say that that system has been commodified for a long time. It's a potential revenue stream, and the the, uh, the public operators are desperate for that money, even though it doesn't make up a huge amount of money, are still desperate for that money in order to <clears throat> provide the service so uh, and, and to provide a quality service. So the question of whether the P3 part is connected with them selling you a... Um, uh, a credit card on that system. Uh, again, it could be part of a much broader strategy by TransLink um, to try to, to, to try to generate revenue, and and the P3 part of it <coughs> might be um, might not be the key driver of that of, of that connection there. Um, in terms of, I think everyone for themselves has to make this, their their own decisions about whether they think that having you know whether it's credit card sellers uh, or or different types of, uh, of businesses on that pl- on that station uh, platform. Whether that is the is sort of the uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back that goes one step over the line of um, overly commodifying the stations. Here in Toronto, there have been there have been on and off discussions about whether um, uh, the transit system whether we should we should sell the right the naming rights to stations. They've done that in other places where they'll say this will be. Take Coca-Cola Station, or this will be McDonald's Station at Bloor and you know Bloor and Young, um, and see if you can generate revenue like that. Um, and and again, this raises all sorts of questions about whether we're overly commodifying the system. One thing to keep in mind, at least here in Toronto, is that these types of deals around um, the shops, or these types of deals around um, naming rights in the grand scheme of the transit system, are not bringing in huge amounts of revenue. Um, these are things that can help spruce up the system, and every bit helps. Um, but in terms of the big dollar uh, um, line items, the ones where you're generating big revenue, there you're really talking about transit fares, um, 
and and government transfers of various types. That's where uh, uh, the big, the sort of big dollar uh, amounts to actually operate and, in, in the best case scenario, bank money so you can build new lines comes from. The debate in Vancouver right now is is uh, certainly centered around um, uh, a push by the city of Vancouver and the current um, city council, um, Vision Vancouver City Council, to push for a two point eight uh, billion dollar uh, tunneled subway um, from uh, Commercial Driver VCC Clark Station up to up to UBC, um, and there are variations of it. And, and uh, TransLink has put forward its own study. And obviously, this has generated a lot of debate um, to what technology uh, this line should take. There's a lot of agreement that uh, something needs to be done, but what exactly to be done is is sort of up for debate at this point. What do you think um, Vancouver and the region um, should be considering when thinking about this? And and certainly keeping in mind that there are other municipalities and uh, areas south of the Fraser that have been saying why should Vancouver get all the goodies? I guess within all of this, what are some of the important things that we should keep in mind and ensure that we include in, in this broader discussion? I think the first part of it is to not necessarily identify an ideal technology. That really with transit systems, what you're trying to do is fit the best technology for the conditions that you're planning for. So um, it, in, there are certain planning and urban contexts where a subway makes the most sense and having it underground, um, whether it's because um, the route is heavily trafficked, whether it's because you already have, um, uh, you know, you have cycle lanes, or, uh, whether it's because there's a historic value to what's on the surface, there are going to be certain routes where, uh, or, or where you have extremely high densities and so that they can cover um, so that the passenger ridership will cover uh, the high cap initial capital costs. There will be certain contexts where um, an underground line makes a lot of sense, um, but we shouldn't be dogmatic about saying it has to be underground. There are going to be other planning contexts where um, maybe the density isn't as high, maybe the road right-of-way is wider, maybe we're not expecting um, uh, that level of growth, or maybe where the opportunity cost, the cost of building one very expensive underground line uh, is not does not outweigh the benefit uh, of of delivering um, an integrated system across the whole region, and so it's really those types of trade offs that you're trying to balance out when you determine uh, whether to go above ground uh, on on surface uh, on an above elevated guideway uh, like with some of the SkyTrain system whether you're going to go in a tunnel um, it really is uh, about picking the right technology for the right location. With with the with the um, uh, proviso that the right technology is not just necessarily what will give you the best flow per se, but also what the costs of those those different options are, and there are, are there are some pretty significant differences in terms of the cost of building uh, at surface compared to building underground using light rail compared to using automated technologies, uh, and so it's it, the the planning challenge uh, is about is about trying to to find that balance. 
but there's also a strong political dimension to um, making these decisions uh, in a context where there's limited resources, in a context where um, building a line in one place um, pretty much necessarily means delaying it in other places. Um, and we've seen the types of delays that occur when you build, when you spend a lot of money in one place. Uh, it takes then, from a planning perspective and from a financing perspective, it takes a long time to arrange that in others. Um, because of that, the politics of uh, these decisions um, can become can become really um, uh, vigorous and can, and and can become really contentious. And having planning models and systems in place um, and processes that that enable people to to debate openly with with um, information, not just about their wants and preferences and dreams, but also with um, what are they willing to put into the pot in order to achieve these and and what are going to be the likely outcomes based on um, uh, sound research. Um, that's, that's, I think, how you tr start to undertake this process of deciding which technology is, is most optimal uh, in, in different places. Um, it's, it's, it's not possible really to say um, without knowing the exact context which types of lines um, and which types of technologies uh, should be built, and not just um, the context today, but the expected context into the future around um, increased densities, around parking policy, um, uh, around around urban design, around expectations for cycling facilities and walking uh, for business uh, and and uh, recreational uh, locations, and how those are going to change over time. Those are the types of uh, variables and, and types of considerations that you'll use when trying to decide which type of technology um, should go along uh, which individual corridor. But it, it's, it's critical then not just to think of this as one single line, but also to think of it um, very much as a system across the whole um, uh, lower mainland region. What are your thoughts on the, the effect that a subway or, or light rail has on forms of development? And I know this is probably not necessarily uh, your research uh, focus, but a lot of concerns have been raised around whether the subway is going to foster a type of uh, sort of metro town or or uh, Vancouver style, Vancouverism podium uh, tower uh, development and, and really increase property values right around these stations. Um, and so we sort of have these pods of, of high, high density, um, but not necessarily sort of the the neighborhood life that we'd like to see or that we already have in existing neighborhoods. Do you have thoughts around that? Yeah, and it, it depends which technologies you're going for. And this is part of a broader community dialogue about um, how you want your city to look, how you want your city to feel, how you want your neighborhood um, uh, uh, to be shaped. Um, transit um, and transit investments are clearly tied to land use. They make the land more accessible, um, and that in many ways drives uh, increased value of that land. It, may, it makes it easier for people who live around them to get to other places in the city. That has a value, and people are willing to pay for it um, in different, in, to different extents depending on what transportation improvements were made. Um, so uh, the, the idea of building very expensive high-order transit in a, in a, along a corridor where there was no appetite for increasing densities um, is, is going to be problematic. Um, and from a transit perspective, will probably lead to a line that doesn't um, uh, have significant uh, uh, users on it or ridership uh, and therefore will be subsidized for uh, a long period of time. Now, the Broadway corridor is a 
bit unique because you have um, you have some major um, uh, trip generators um, at the ends of it. Uh, so you have UBC at one end. So that will really uh, that will um, create traffic on that line uh, and make sure that it's well used. Um, keeping in mind, a lot of the users uh, use Metro um, uh, U passes. So how much incremental revenue are you generating from from each of those users? Um, it still remains to be to be seen if you if you uh, spend to build this very expensive line. But on the land use question, the land use is really key here, um, and. It, it, again, it comes down to that issue of if you want the expensive transit project, if you want the project underground because you don't want disruptions on the surface, the only way to really make that viable is to have density uh, and, and to have um, development around around the system, around the stations. And it's not it's not that it has to be sort of necessarily a sort of natural process of survival of the fittest type of thing. And I think. Um, uh, one of the real strengths of Vancouver, uh, when we look at it um, from across the country sitting here in Toronto, has been um, how well the, the planners have been able to integrate density uh, and do the design work and do the fine-grain knitting of um, buildings into the urban context in a way that um, that does build neighborhoods rather than just um, a forest of towers. And I, and I think that um, the, the challenge for transit planners, and especially the, tra the, the challenge for public-private partnerships, uh, is to really uh, marry up the different interests so that you can ensure that when you do build these systems um, and, you, and you do spend to build the high-order transit, uh, whether it's underground or whether it's light rail, that you're then able to integrate um, effective land use planning and effective um, increases in density uh, around the stations. Now, the question will always come up, I mean, how high is too high? The Broadway <laughs> corridor is um, uh, is really prized for its, its, its landform. It's really prized for its livability. Um, the people there are very defensive of that, um, are proud of what they have, and are, are equally defensive of um, things that will change it. Um, and so I think that's where you do start to get into some tough conversations about if you want high-order transit, there's also part of the conversation is are you willing to have your neighborhood um, changed and, and see, see change and see new people come in um, and, and see the dynamic change? And are, are, are you willing to engage in a process to encourage that, to ensure that, that those changes that do occur are um, uh, uh, building neighborhoods and communities um, around in, in these dense environments? And I think Vancouver has some examples where that's been done uh, uh, quite well. So there are there are models where you can where you can draw from in your own region, and, and I think you have a real history and a real uh, presence present of of um, of doing this land use um, planning uh, quite well. So there is there is that to be uh, quite positive about. But certainly, the conversation about land use change around the broad Broadway corridor is going to happen if if you're talking about building a 2.7 or 2.8 billion dollar transit line. Um, it's, it's just impossible to imagine that you'll build that system and then have zoning and planning bylaws that don't allow that land use change to take place. I can't help but notice there there seems to be this tension in Vancouver where the wealthier west side um, probably is not going to want uh, an at-grade light rail system uh, running through their neighborhood. Um, and that's why I would argue in some instances that the subway is more palatable for um, for policymakers and and planners and politicians to to argue for. Um, and I'm just wondering if there's Vancouver in many ways has been criticized for this sort of anti-urban um, image of itself or trying to retain this this idea. And it's often 
it can be seen how density is divided across the city um, and what it won't be approved in one neighborhood and what will be pushed on to the east side or another portion of the city and increased density. How, how do these tensions, and often they uh, kind of, you know, come out as, as political battles, um, how, do these, how do these tensions play into that and, and what are politicians and policymakers paying attention to? Well, this conversation um, certainly started uh, around the Canada line, the exact same discussion you're, you're talking about um, around um, whether certain residents in certain communities will take uh, and approve of an at-grade system um, uh, dates, certainly dates back to the Canada line and um, you know the, this famous public engagement meeting where uh, residents of, I think it was Carisdale, um, one resident stood up and said, we are the creme de la creme of Vancouver. You're not going to be running an at-grade transit system along the Arbutus Corridor. Um, so this, this divisiveness around density and around at-grade transit um, certainly goes back a ways in, in Vancouver, um, and it's not unique to Vancouver. Um, it's, it, this plays out all across the country and probably all across the world, that um, that there are pros and cons to every type of transit investment. Um, money can put uh, transit underground, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily solve the sort of systemic issues around um, who's getting transit first and, and what communities are getting it um, and, and who's bearing the brunt if, uh, if, if you decide not to go for the super high order um, underground type of systems. So you're going to see these, these tensions playing out um, in all of, all of the discussions. I think one of the um, ongoing debates, and I think you referenced it earlier, uh, about what's happening in Vancouver really is the, the, the interplay between the city center and, and, and Vancouver, the city of Vancouver more broadly, and then, and then what's been taking place south of the Fraser River. I mean, there has been a lot of development, a ton of development, um, dense development in some areas uh, that's been taking place south of the Fraser River and in many of the municipalities, that's certainly in many of the municipalities that surround uh, the city of Vancouver. Um, and I think in many of those places, um, there's a sense that both um, politicians and the city planners, but also the communities are saying, we've been playing by the rules. You've asked us to increase our density. You've asked us to recognize that um, single-family homes and, and large, um, large lot sizes um, is, creating, um, is creating traffic chaos, is creating, is creating gridlock, is bad for the environment. Um, we're trying to be a sustainable city. We're trying to be the greenest city in the world. Um, you want us to change our landform and, and to, ch and to in in invite all of these new residents and these new towers into our community. And part of that is also then the flip side. The payoff for that is we'll give you better transit. And I think a lot of those communities are starting to say, uh, well, wait a second, if you keep building these extremely expensive uh, transit systems uh, in the city of Vancouver, um, then what is, what is their pay into this? Are they going to take increased densities um, that make these systems feasible um, and, and that, that share some of the, uh, and so that when they get the reward, they also share some of the burden for the growth that's taking place uh, in this region. But you can see how divisive these conversations become very quickly, and it's easy to point a finger at, um, at your neighbor or your neighboring community very quickly um, in these types of discussions. And I think part of avoiding that divisiveness is to step back and try to do planning at a regional scale uh, and try to think about how you uh, integrate and, and, and stitch together an entire region uh, rather than going line by line, um, which can then, uh, and technology by technology, uh, which, which can then create all of these divisive conversations. 
And and that would be just to conclude. That would be what one of my concerns with this debate is. I th I think there's an equity dimension here that perhaps on the Vancouver side isn't quite being given the airtime because I think for the people that can't necessarily afford to live in Vancouver um, or for other reasons don't want to, um, maybe Surrey should also get some of the, the goodies in terms of transit infrastructure. So I think recognizing that and, and doing that through regional planning um, I think is, is really crucial here. I think there's no doubt that there needs to now be um, a conversation about where transit uh, is going and, 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 and a move again to a regional plan. And so I, I was heartened to hear that, that uh, TransLink is starting, is, is taking on this role and, and, and now looking at what's the next generation. Um, from what I've been reading here in Toronto, it sounds like um, the Evergreen line is now uh, going to go forward. So that's another um, line in a, in a more suburban location that's going yeah, to... under gonna construction, yeah. So that's going to provide part of the um, the provision of, of, of transit in, in some of these communities. Again, part of the story here is that we're not, it, it, it's, it's a hierarchy or an ordering of transit that really makes it effective. It's not just having um, a single, uh, very expensive high order line that then has no feeder service into. I think Vancouver um, uh, has, has improved in providing that, that base level service uh, in some areas so that you can then um, use it to feed into the transit system, but into the higher order um, rapid transit system. Um, I think there's still, uh, that's part of the work that has to be done is trying to, again, find that balance there as well so that if you're saying not everyone is going to be able to get um, these um, rapid transit projects right away, can we come up with lower cost uh, alternatives that are maybe intermediate, that maybe provide people with um, uh, an early view of what the, what rapid transit could be. So whether this is um, rolling out more rapid bus type systems, whether it's something as simple as painting um, uh, bus only lanes on on some of the major arteries uh, across the cities that people can see, this is what you'll be getting if um, if you know if we're able to build uh, greater transit, um, greater rapid transit in these areas. Because part of the conversation here is not just about what should be built, but how we're going to pay for it. And um, I, I suspect you're having, you will have similar conversations uh, as we're having here in uh, Toronto, which are about which are going to be the new revenue tools um, or taxes, as, as, as they actually are. Mm -hmm. What are going to be the new taxes and new revenue tools that we're going to use to, to pay for this massive scale of investment um, that we need to keep our cities viable, to keep them livable, to keep them sustainable? Uh, and, and that conversation, really to bring as many people on board as possible, requires that they feel like, like if they pay more, they're going to get something out of it, that it's not just the type of investment, that they're going to pay higher taxes so that someone in another part of the region uh, can, can reap the benefits, and especially if those systems are being built in a way that is the most expensive uh, way of doing it. And the last thing I'll say about um, some, a, a line along the uh, Broadway corridor is that because it's connecting up the university um, and, and students, um, many of them have um, all sorts of financial difficulties and are paying higher tuitions, um, and many come from diverse backgrounds. Um, that 
line becomes a bit more complicated than just a conversation about um, the equity conversation around a line out to the university uh, is, is slightly more complicated, I think, in terms of how we understand social equity and how we understand uh, the distribution of benefits and costs. And I think that, that has to be uh, factored in when we're talking specifically about that, that line. Um, and again, it's a line that's been on, on planning maps in Vancouver dating back decades. Um, <laughs> And, and it's, it's, it's part of a conversation I think will probably be ongoing until uh, shovels hit the ground. Well, Maddie, I want to thank you for your time and the fascinating discussion. I really appreciate it. You bet. It was nice talking with you. Great to talk to you. Take care. Okay, have a nice day. Bye-bye. How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen, and then get riding. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news, as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available anytime at, as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And I'm Andy Longhurst, and we're coming to the end of the program, but I want to thank you so much for tuning in. And we're here every week, live on CATR, Tuesdays from 5 to 6 p.m., and syndicated on CJSF Burnaby uh, from 10 to 11 on Fridays. So I want to thank uh, you if you're listening on CATR as well as if you're listening syndicated on CJSF. Wonderful to have listeners from all over the metro region. And uh, you were hearing from uh, Assistant Professor Maddie Simiatiki. He is uh, in the uh, Department of Geography and Program and Planning at the University of Toronto. And we are discussing transit and um, uh, transportation infrastructure and the provision and delivery of it. Uh, his focus has been on transportation policy and planning and um, how it's financed, delivered, um, among broader themes uh, in community and regional planning. He's been uh, published extensively 
in uh, journals uh, in planning, urban studies, and geography, and it was a real pleasure to talk um, and discuss a number of these issues, particularly around uh, the private-public uh, partnership, the P3, and how it's uh, been used in the case of the Canada Line, which a lot of his research has looked at. So keeping these issues in mind um, when we think about the possibility of a subway line down Broadway, um, or if we consider other options um, opposed, uh, as opposed to a, a subway down uh, a subway down Broadway to UBC um, as has been um, the the most the identified as the favorable option um, by uh, Vision Vancouver councillors and Mayor Gregor Robertson. So things to keep in mind, and I think um, Professor Simetiki provided a wonderful um, snapshot of, of a number of the issues and also the politics around this. And when we think about regional transportation, what do we want it to look like? Um, how do we want it to integrate with the system? And also, how do P3s integrate with within the broader system, uh, if this is even an option that we're considering. So a number of things to consider, and um, I'm sure this conversation will certainly continue. We're going to go out with a track from Sleuth, again from CITR's uh, Pop Alliance Compilation Volume 3. And uh, again, I want to thank you again uh, for tuning in, also for your support of uh, CITR's annual funding drive. And uh, if you want to support CITR, CITR helps make this show possible. And you can do that by going to citr.ca slash fundrive. Or you can also go to thecityfm.org and find more information about CITR and um, the wonderful independent programming that it provides. So again, uh, Sleuth coming up now. And uh, we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks again for tuning in. (laughs) 